Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon. Now if we can have Dick Nichols come up for the scripture reading. You can open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is nearsighted, is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he is cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way, you will be richly provided for in provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. There ends the reading of the word. Good morning. Thank you, Dick, for reading that passage. If you didn't turn there just a moment ago, uh, please turn there now. That's our passage this morning. We're continuing in the series we just started, Living with Sense in Serious Times, uh, from Second Peter and the Little Book of Jude. That's what we're doing this fall. And uh, this morning, is uh, we're going to look at those passages, uh, challenging verses, for sure. So let's uh, ask for God's help as we get into them. Lord, thank you so much for bringing us to this place. Thank you for bringing us to yourself, more importantly. And uh, we would just look to you now, Lord, uh, help us uh, to understand these verses together and to apply them to our, our world, to our church, to our homes, and to ourselves. And uh, we ask all this in the great and awesome name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Well, back in 2020, uh, the Vatican closed its museums. For 88 days, uh, the Vatican's so big and it's so old that it has a series of museums, a complex, I guess, and they closed them. They closed them to the public for almost three months. Uh, the reason, of course, was the pandemic. Uh, the coronavirus uh, was especially bad at that time in Italy, and so they just closed the Vatican museums to, to the public. However, one man who worked there kept going to work. Uh, his name is uh, Gianni Crea, and Mr. Crea is the chief keeper of the keys, he keeps the keys, as the name implies, for all of the different exhibits and halls and doors that are part of the Vatican Museums. And so he's got the keys to the Sistine Chapel, among other things. He's the guy who's in charge of all those keys. And it's a lot of keys because there's a lot of doors to unlock. Something like 2,797 keys. 
That's how many keys this guy is in charge of. Uh, he, he does have a team. He's got a team of about 10 people. And they go through every morning and they take all those hundreds, thousands of keys and they unlock all the doors that have to be unlocked. And then at the end of the day, they go back through again and they lock all the doors that have to be locked for the night, 2,797 keys. And when I saw that story a few, uh, few weeks ago, actually it was longer ago than that, when I saw this story, uh, the part that really amazed me was that they kept doing it all through that time when the Vatican was closed. And it was partly it was tradition, partly it was you know, a little bit of practicality because they had to get in there and dust now and again. But every single day, even when no one was going to look at the exhibits, no one was going to go in there, Mr. Crea and his team went through with all the keys and unlocked all the, all the exhibits, and they went through again at the end of the day and locked them all up again. They were diligent in their work, even at the height of a pandemic. This morning, we're going to talk about the importance of having a diligent faith a diligent faith. Just as uh, the Vatican's keeper of the keys was diligent about his work, so do we need to be diligent, Peter tells us in today's passage. Diligent about building up our faith in Jesus. Uh, That's what he says in verse 5. So verse 5 starts out, he says, for this reason, for this very reason, there's actually an emphatic on it, for this very reason. And so before we go any further, we have to stop and ask what he means. And what he's, when he uses those words, when he says, for this reason, he's pointing back to the stuff we looked at last week. So if you were here last Sunday or you heard last Sunday's sermon, you, you've got a leg up because you remember some of those things we talked about. Uh, the, the new life we have in Christ, the divine power that's uh, coursing through our souls now, all that stuff we talked about last week. Because God has done all of that, verses 3 and 4, and actually 1 through 4, let's just call it that, because God's done all of that for us in and through Christ, here's something we need to do. Right? That's where he's going to go with verse 5. Because of what God has done for us, he says, make every effort. Make every effort to supplement your faith. So he's got a couple of verbs in there. Make every effort to supplement or add to uh, your faith. Now the phrase there, let's look at both of them. The phrase that says, uh, make every effort, it means to be diligent. The word means to be diligent about something. It's actually the same word, if you're using the ESV like I usually preach from, uh, it's the same word as verse 10. Verse 10 says, be diligent. Right? Therefore, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling, it says in verse 10. Um, ESV uses, says make every effort in verse 5, but it's actually the same Greek word. In fact, some translations will translate both the same just to bring that out. Work hard at it. That's what the word means. Work hard at something. Do your best. Give it your all. Be diligent. Right? Even if the museum is closed, you still go and unlock the doors anyway. It's, it's that kind of a thing. Uh, so the other word, so make every effort, work hard at, work hard at what? Uh, to, to supplement, uh, to, to add to, to build on, he, he says. That's what that word supplement means that's used here. Uh, make every effort to, to provide further, to add to. There's actually a little bit of a sense of, of making something richer, right? So you're not making it, you're, you're building it up is the idea. So you're going to take something that's strong and you're going to make it stronger or better, and that's what Peter tells us to do with our faith. Now, this is where the, the, uh, the, the quizzical looks start to set in. I can see him already. Hold on with me. I'll get there in a minute. I'll explain what, what he's doing here. But that is where he starts in verse 5. He says, make every effort to build up, to make stronger your faith. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about how the Lord wants us to be diligent, to make every effort to build up our faith in Jesus Christ. 
Uh, We're going to look at it in two parts. Uh, Part one is we're going to look at what it looks like to do that. So how do you do this? How do you diligently build up your faith? How do you and I build build up our faith? How are we diligent about it? He actually is going to tell us in verses 5 through 7. So we're going to look at verses 5 through 7. It's kind of part one. Then we'll look at the, uh, the benefits of doing so, the benefits of a diligent faith. That's verses 8 through 11. So 5 through 7 and then 8 through 11. And we'll actually talk about four, four benefits of making every effort to build up our faith. That's our, our outline. So part one first, let's start with the first one. Uh, what does it look like to have a diligent faith? What, what, what's it look like? How are we going to do this? Well, the answer, the answer is it actually looks a little bit like climbing a ladder, uh, climbing a ladder. You'll, you'll, you see what I mean here. Let me, let me read it again. Verse 5. Uh, he says, For this very reason, so again, pointing back at the things from verses 1 through 4, for this very reason, here's, what, here's our response, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And virtue with knowledge. The verb is going to carry to each of these. Supplement your virtue with knowledge. And supplement your knowledge with self-control. And self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. We'll we'll stop there. Some people, if you look at commentaries on this passage, some will call it the ladder of faith. Uh, More than one Bible teacher I was looking at uh, calls it the ladder of faith. It's actually a, a literary device that the authors use, that Peter's using, where, where you have one thing build on another. And, and uh, so you could, I could show you other examples, both in Scripture and outside of Scripture, where there's this one, then this one, then this one. And so you listen to that, and you can almost see where it feels like you're climbing a ladder a little bit, right? Because when you climb a ladder, you don't just jump up to rung 10. You, you start at the bottom, and you, you climb the ladder. And, and so we'll, we'll call this sometimes, we'll call this passage the ladder of faith. So we're going to climb the ladder of this morning. Uh, before we look at the rungs, though, uh, let me tell you, uh, let me address a tension that, that this immediately raises for us. And I feel it, you feel it, it's a, it's a tension in this text. And so I want to give you a picture for how to think about this tension. And we're going to keep coming back to it. I just want you to think about it all through. Keep it in your head for all the stuff we're talking about this morning. So what's the tension? The tension is between God's grace and our effort. God's grace and our effort. Last week we talked about, and we started this series with uh, verse 1. Verse 1 says that you are saved by grace alone. You and I are not saved by our own works, we're saved by grace alone. Verse 1, how did we obtain this righteous, this faith that we have, that we're talking about now in verse 5? How did, where do we get this faith? It comes by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's all from Him and none from us. Right? That, that's the gospel. Paul says it, I quoted it last week, Ephesians 2, it's it's one of the clearest verses on this doctrine, so I love to go back to it, 2, 8, and 9, it is by grace you've been saved through faith, not your own doing, the gift of God, not a result of works. So why is Peter talking about work? He tells us to make every effort, he tells us to be diligent, those are work words, right? Those are work words. If you're telling your kids to mow the lawn or something, those are the kind of words you do. They're work words. So why is he telling us to work? If he knows, if he just told us in verse 1, we're saved only by the righteousness of Christ. What's, the, what, what's going on there? Well, to answer that, let me, let me give you a little picture. So, so I, I started out by saying it's the ladder of faith. I actually want to mix it up a little, week, a little bit this week. Uh, ladders are a little boring. Uh, how about instead of a ladder, let's think about the climbing wall of faith. 
I don't know if any of you have ever climbed up a climbing wall, but it's a little more rigorous, and I think ladders can be a little too easy for some of us. So, so let's think about a climbing wall, right? The climbing wall of faith. You've got all these handholds, and you've you got to climb your way up the, the climbing wall. This summer, uh, my, my, our, our daughter-in-law, that's still getting used to the fun of saying that, our daughter-in-law, Sarah, our son Josh got married in August, and his wife's name is Sarah, uh, our daughter-in-law, Sarah, went on a missions trip, and she's on staff, actually, at Parkview Church, the E-Free Church out in Iowa City. She's on their, their youth ministry staff, and as part of her job, she went with a small team from the church with Athletes in Action. And so Athletes in Action sent a group over to, to Europe. They spent two weeks in Europe, uh, one week in Germany and one week in Poland, and they were mostly working with, they were targeting Ukrainian children, so Ukrainian refugees, and they were working with, with children, kind of like basically offering almost like a VBS model. So they did one week in, in Germany, a VBS, and another one in, uh, in Poland with Ukrainians. And uh, like I said, it was athletes in action, so both weeks had kind of sports themes to them. And so there was one day, Sarah was telling, about, telling us about this, that the second week, uh, there was a day, a whole day, dedicated to rock climbing. And so the, the church that was sponsoring this team that came in had rented one of these rock climbing walls with all those, those little handholds. And the team from America, the Athletes in Action team, was, was coming in to kind of work with the kids all day and share the gospel with them and, 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 and help them, but have fun with the rock climbing wall thing. Uh, there was one problem, though. I don't know if it was an oversight or what happened, but somewhere in there, some wires got crossed. And they were missing a key part of the whole day, which was that there was nobody there to do the belaying. Belaying, B-E-L-A-Y. Now, I know nothing about rock climbing. I have never even gotten close to one of those things, but um, this is probably as close as I've ever gotten to one. <laughs> but, uh, but, um, but like I say, Sarah has, and she kind of explained this to me. So uh, if she ever tunes into this, you know, she can tell me I, I, how badly I described it, but I will do my best to describe it. Uh, so so when, you, when somebody goes up a climbing wall, it actually takes two people to do it. Uh, one is the climber, the other is the belayer. And the belayer has all of this equipment that, um, and it involves like pulleys and ropes, I guess, and, and the belayer stays on the ground or on a secure place on the ground or the climbing wall, while the climber has all the harnesses and climbs up. And if the climber slips, if the climber loses his grip, the belayer has him right? Or has her. And, and it's because of the pulleys. It's like, so you're like, oh no, off I go. And the belayer just has you because of the tension and the, the, the tension and the slack and the rope. It all somehow magically works together, I guess. Sarah knows how to do that. Uh, nobody knew that she knew how to do it, but she'd done it a little bit in the past, not an expert by any, ex by any extent, but she was the only one who'd ever done it at all. And when you're the only one who's done something, that makes you the expert. And so um, she kind of, you know, she kind of raised her hand and said, well, I, I could try to help with that. And so she became the belayer for the day. And she ended up with blisters on her hands because she didn't have her own gloves and all the rest. But, but she did that. So all these little kids who had never done this before, they were able to scale up the wall. And when they slipped, Sarah had them. She was holding the rope. That's really what the belayer does for us lay people. The belayer holds the rope. And I was thinking about that this week, and I was thinking about this passage. I think that's actually a very helpful picture for this tension that we're all wrestling with with a passage like this. It's a really helpful picture for the relationship between God's grace and our effort. We need to climb the wall, right? Peter's going to give us a climbing wall of faith here in verses 5, 6, and 7, and he does not say, if you want to. 
It's not optional. He tells us, God tells us through him, that we need to climb the climbing wall of faith. Uh, Faith in Jesus Christ is active, not passive. Sometimes we make that mistake as believers. We're kind of like, all right, I got saved. Now I'm just going to sit back and let God do his thing. And I don't need to do anything. I don't need to think. I don't need to pray. I don't need to do anything at all. That is so unbiblical. Faith in Jesus Christ is not passive. It's active. There's work we need to do. That's why Peter tells us make every effort. We need to work this thing. Paul, Paul says so in Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's the exact same concept. Not that you're going to save yourself, but you're going to take this really seriously because there's work for us to be done. And so, if I can put it this way, God is our divine belayer. He's the divine belayer. The Holy Spirit is holding the rope. The Holy Spirit is holding the rope. And so we're climbing, we're making every effort, but he's got us. And it actually goes back to, it's why Peter started where he started, verse 3. Remember what we read at the beginning of verse 3? His divine power gives us what we need for life and godliness and all the rest that we talked about. So yes, we are to make every effort, but we're making that effort in God's power all along knowing that he's got us. He's holding the rope. So keep that in your mind, please, as we climb up the climbing wall or climb up the ladder now, because some of these things are really challenging, and they kind of get in our face a little bit, and they call us to a, to a greater commitment and so on, but we're doing all that with him holding on to us. It's his divine power that's working on us, uh, working on us and in us and through us and for us. So now let's, uh, let's climb up the wall here. Let's talk about some of these things. Uh, we'll start at the bottom. When you're climbing, that's where you start. You start at the bottom. The, found, the bottom, the foundation, he says it, is our faith. It's our faith in Jesus Christ. And so we've trusted uh, in Jesus. We have his, his power. We have his promises. All these things we talked about last week. We have a new life. We have uh, freedom now from, from the, the clutches of sin. He says, okay, now you're going to build on that. Now it's time to start doing some building. And so he says, supplement your faith. And it's not that there's anything lacking in the faith. The faith is all we needed to be saved. But now we're going to build on it. Supplement it, he says, with virtue. And I want to use the phrase uh, moral behavior. And some other, you'll see that in some other translations. Goodness, moral excellence. Some will say, uh, to your faith, add virtue. Add a, a moral life. Add moral behavior. Uh, that's important. Morality is important. It is. Uh, Not that we have a monopoly on it. Christians aren't the only ones who talk about virtue. Uh, Other religions put a big emphasis on virtue. Some of the most virtuous people in the world are are in other religions that think that they have to save themselves with their virtue. Uh, And so there are other philosophies, other religions that talk about the importance of ethics and morality. So so it's not that we're the only ones who care about morality as Christians. But what we do have to say is that we have to care about morality as Christians. It's important. Like that, that's a base starting place. We're still down here. Our feet are still on the ground. And already he's clocking in and saying, you need to live the right way. We, we need to do that. Uh, if, if we're going to say we believe in Jesus, that's the foundation, faith in Christ. If we're going to say we believe in Jesus, we better have some moral excellence that backs it up. We better have some moral excellence, he says. Why? Because there's a name for people who say they're Christians but behave in ways that are immoral. We call them hypocrites. Right? And you don't want to be a hypocrite. We don't want to be hypocrites. And so he says, all right, your faith is in place. Great. Now supplement your faith with virtue. Start Head out for, for living, uh, living in a way that's moral. You're not going to be perfect. We've talked about that in other passages. But, but that's, a, that's where we start going. So now we climb a little higher. Uh, to your virtue, he says, add knowledge. 
add knowledge, supplement your virtue with knowledge. And this is a specific kind of knowledge. The, the, the word knowledge here means discernment or discretion. And in its context, with the one that comes before it and after it, I think the idea here is, um, it's the idea of practical wisdom. Practical wisdom for the best way to live. And so it builds on the one before, right? Virtue, uh, you know, virtue is knowing the right thing to do. Uh, knowledge is knowing how to do it. It's practical wisdom for knowing how to implement strategies in our lives where we can live virtuously. And so, for example, an easy example, um, it's one thing to know that we should resist sexual temptation, right? Resist sexual temptation. That's morality, right? That's moral, uh, that's virtue. Let's call it virtue. That's virtue. Resist sexual temptation. Uh, but you're not done yet if, if you just know it, right? You just kind of say, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. We also need to have knowledge. We need to have some practical strategies. You know, I'm going to bounce my eyes, and I'm going to have accountability partnerships, and I'm going to be careful where I go, and, and how I'm going to guard my heart and my relationships. That's, that's knowledge, right? There's, there's practical wisdom for living out the virtue, right? So it's, it's not just theoretical, it's practical. That, that's where, where knowledge, that, that's what that knowledge word means. So I got faith in Christ, moral behavior, knowledge. Uh, let's, let's reach a little higher. Let's climb a little higher here. He says, to your knowledge, add self-control. Supplement your knowledge with self-control. Uh, this word, and you can see why we, we're going to need this one to do everything that's the, the two below it. Uh, this one is the ability to master ourselves. And boy, do we need God's help to do that. We need his, his divine power for sure. But it's self-control, self-discipline, you might say. Uh, and, and so what, what's, what is it? Most simply, self-control is when I want to do X because I want to do it, but I should do Y, and so I do Y instead. Right? So I choose to do the thing I want to do. Self-control. I, I control myself. I say, no self. We're not going to sleep another half hour. We're going to get up now, and I'm going to get that cup of coffee or that cup of orange juice, whatever wakes me up a little bit, and I'm going to go grab my Bible, and I'm going to spend time with the Lord, even though I'd really love to sleep another half hour. That's self-control. That's, that's the, what this word here means. And when we do that, we're, we're building it up. We're taking that faith, and we're, we're building it. We're making ourselves stronger in our faith. Make every effort, he says. Let's climb a little higher. Uh, to your self-control, he says, add steadfastness. So I'm going to use the word perseverance, because that's one of the ones I, I, just, I, I personally uh, like that word. Uh, endurance, steadfastness, those are all ways you could translate the next word he uses here. Now it's getting hard. We're, we're way up in the air now. We're 10 feet up. We're looking down. I hope I don't lose my grip. Uh, it's, it's that. We're, we're getting up now into the difficulty with some of these, why we need divine power. Each one, uh, there's a sense in which each one's a little harder than the one before. And that Peter's order on these isn't random. He doesn't just take a bunch of things and throw them against the wall and see what order they come down. He, he's, he, each one is intentionally building on the other. And, and that's what is happening here now with perseverance. Because we, we need to persevere, right? We need to stick with it with self-control. It's, it's easy to have self-control once, but can I have self-control again the next day and the day after that and the week after that and the month after that? So there's this idea of persevering in self-control, knowledge, moral behavior. Uh, that's how you get better at things. You stick with them. Uh, if you've ever done any kind of sport or any kind of physical hobby, you know that, right? Whether it's running or lifting weights or... You play volleyball or you just putt around the golf course. Whatever it is you like to do, it takes perse perseverance. You've got to persevere for the, to keep getting better, stronger at, at those particular skills. 
And there's very much a sense in which Peter's telling us here, that's how it works with faith. We, we need to persevere if we're going to build up our spiritual muscles in the Lord. Let's reach a little higher. Let's climb a little higher. Uh, to your perseverance, he says, now I want you to add godliness. God says, add godliness. This is the same word we looked at last week in verse 3. So if you caught last week, verse 3, I told you that word means piety or devotion. And so it's a personal engagement with, with God. I'm living to please Him. Piety, devotion. And I think the reason this one comes in here is that, is that Peter's telling us that all of these things we're talking about, they're done for the Lord. That's what separates it from just kind of a, a cold legalism. These are, these are done out of, out of devotion, out of piety, out of love for, for our God. And so, for example, you know, so really we, we kind of get to the, the um, issue of motivations a little bit here. Why should I persevere in self-control and knowledge and virtue? Why should I persevere? Well, I could live a moral life so that other people will think well of me. All right, any of us could do that. We could say, you know, I really value my reputation in the community as a business leader, for example, and so I'm going to live a moral life so that my business will do well. Uh, that, that, that would be true. Your business would do well. But I think Peter would push us on that, and he would say, but that's not why. That's not your why. That might be a nice side benefit, but that's not your why. Why do we as, as Christians pursue these things? We do it because our, our God wants us to. And so our moral virtue and our self-control and our perseverance, these things become expressions of piety, not kind of utilitarian ways to keep a good reputation so we, our, our profits are higher and people like us better. People may well like us better. See, there's always that nice little side effect in many cultures. I mean, most people don't want to do business with a cheat, right? Most people want to do business with an honest, an honest man or an honest woman. And so there is that side benefit, but it's not our motivation. Our motivation is piety. It's godliness. It's devotion to our God. And so he's telling us, as you're making these efforts, make them to the Lord. Make them as unto him because he's the one uh, that, that you love. He's the one who's done all this for you. So we're getting high up in the air here. The air's starting to get a little thin, but we've actually got two more. We're not at the top yet. Uh, to, the, to your godliness, he says, add brotherly affection. Brotherly affection. Make every effort to supplement your godliness with brotherly affection. Uh, the, the Greek word here is, uh, it's, it's a word that, we actually, the city of Philadelphia is this Greek word. It's, it's brotherly love. And so it's the idea of, um, of relational warmth. It's, it's affection, specifically, the way the Greeks would use it, and it uh, bleeds over into the Bible, uh, is, is it's relational warmth for your own people, your own tribe, your own group, your own family, right? Brotherly love. But it, it, it's often broader to your, your group, your people, if I can say that. Uh, in the Bible, when you see this word, it's almost always, I don't even know if there's any exceptions, it's almost always used to apply to... Um, to, the, to re, our relationships with one another. So Christians' relationships with each other. That's your, your brotherly affection that Peter says here. And so uh, when people stick around after church, you know, we're kind of like, all right, you can go home now. And you look half an hour later, half of you are still here. Uh, that's, be, that's brotherly affection. That's this thing right here. That's the, that, that relationships, that relational warmth. You're catching up with people. You're sharing funny stories. You're sharing prayer requests, catching up. How was your week? All those kind of things. Peter says, add that. Add that. And there's a reason for this here. And you say, well, shouldn't that one be easier? I mean, we're talking about just being nice to the people we like. That should almost be lower down the, the, the ladder. Except I think that 
that this one is enhanced by all these others. As we're living uh, in a way that's godly, as we're exercising self-control over ourselves, the brotherly affection is, is enhanced. And the other thing it does is, I think at this point, we bring together the, the two sides to the great commandment. You know, so what's the great commandment? Love the Lord your God with everything you've got. Right? Love him with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Love God with everything you got, Jesus says. That's your godliness. That's your piety, your devotion. But then what's the second half of the great commandment? And love your neighbor as yourself. There's your brotherly affection. And so uh, it's actually not, it's not, it shouldn't be way down here. Uh, it's way up here because it's so important, those relationships with each other. And then we come to the top. Then we reach the top of the wall. And this is also part of the great commandment, but it's sacrificial love. That's the one that Peter stops the ladder on. That's the one where you reach the top. He says, make every effort to supplement your brotherly affection with love. Uh, for those of you who've done ever, ever done any Greek or that kind of stuff, this is that Greek word agape that we talk about sometimes. It's the word in the Greek language, uh, philos or Philadelphia, uh, that one um, that describes affection for people you like. Uh, this one describes making sacrifices whether you like them or not. I mean, the like, like, like is usually there, but it doesn't have to be there with this word, right? So what is, what is that sacrificial love? That's the love that took Jesus to the cross. Right, while we were still his, his enemies, he died for us. He loved us that way. So Jesus sacrificed himself for us. And so we usually talk about this kind of love here as sacrificial love. And that's the one that everything built to. Do you see how this one is at the top here? Because here's where you really see, I mean, if you really want to stretch your, build up your muscles, make a sacrifice for somebody. Right, if you really want to build up your spiritual muscles, you and me, if we do, um, then set aside our own needs, our own wants, our own desires, our own conveniences. That's what, that's what parents do. It's what we as spouses do a lot of times. A lot of times it's what good friends will do for each other. So you can see these kind of, these, these, uh, there's overlap with some of these things. But, but serve somebody when you don't want to. That's this kind of love. And that takes work. It takes work. Almost by definition, it takes work to, uh, to love people that way, to love other people that way. In fact, all of these things take work. Every one of them takes work. They don't come naturally to us, which is why Peter has to say, make every effort. Be diligent, right? Keep working at them. In the power of Christ, the Holy Spirit is working in you and through you, always remembering he's holding the rope. But make the effort. Get in there and work at it. That's what he tells us to do. Make, make every effort on these qualities. Now, our author knows, Peter knows, that this is a tall order, and so he moves immediately to the benefits. He moves to, to the motivation for this. When you tell me i got to do something really hard, I want to know what's on the other side. What am I, what, what, what I going to get out of it, right? What am I going to get out of it? You know, the coach says, you know, two a days, and you're going to run, you know, we're going to run three miles today, and then we're going to come back this afternoon and run four, and, you know, I, I, what am I going to get out of it? Well, maybe you'll get a championship at the end. Maybe we'll win the district, whatever it might be. Uh, we need to know the motivation. And so that's what we get in verses 8, 9, 10, and 11. So let's talk about some benefits, four benefits of, of doing what we're told to do in verses 5 through 7. Four benefits. Number one, the first benefit of diligent faith is that your hands will be fruitful. Your hands will be fruitful. That's verse 8. For if these qualities, what qualities, Peter? Verses 5 through 7. If these qualities are yours, and they're increasing, right? You're never going to be perfect in it. We're just keep growing in them as the Spirit works. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, here's what they're going to do. 
They're going to keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. They'll keep us. The word means protect. And so these qualities protect us. They protect us from being, his words, ineffective and unfruitful in our our living, our knowledge of our Lord. So think for a moment, please, about the things you do in your life for the Lord. Maybe it's a ministry you do. Maybe it's a ministry here in the church. Maybe it's a ministry outside of the church. Maybe it's your efforts as a parent. You know, you are, you are determined by the grace of God to raise your children in Christ, uh, you know, or to support them if they're young adults or older adults. You know, you're like, I'm, I'm, I'm determined to do that. Your efforts as a parent, you do it unto the Lord. Maybe it's your, your fight against temptation. Maybe it's your prayer life. Maybe it's your witnessing. Maybe it's your giving. Uh, maybe it's your, your faithfulness at work. You're determined to live out your faith at, at work like we're called to do. Whatever it is, think what it is you do. Verse 8 says that if you're working on your faith, if you're being active about your faith in Jesus Christ, like we're told to do, you will see results. Verse 8, it's virtually a promise. You will see results. You, you will be fruitful. He states it in the negative. You will not be ineffective. You will not be unfruitful if we keep growing in these qualities. We won't be perfect. There's nothing about perfection in here. Please don't get mucked up on that issue. Uh, it, it's not, it's not, we're not talking about being perfect. We're talking about growing in these things. So we will be fruitful as we're growing in uh, virtue and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and brotherly affection and the whole list. uh, We will be fruitful in our service to the Lord. Number two, benefit number two. If uh, we are pursuing a diligent faith, our eyes will see clearly. Your eyes will see clearly. That's verse nine. For whoever lacks these qualities, again, reference back to verse five through seven, Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So if we do not have these qualities, so verse 8 is a positive statement. Here's something cool that happens if you do have them. Uh, you'll, you'll, you'll be fruitful. Uh, verse 9 is here's something bad that happens if we don't. <laughs> if you do not have these qualities, uh, we're blind, he says. We're blind. Uh, spiritually nearsighted. He uses the term nearsighted. The, the tag, you know, the, be a medical term, I suppose. You're spiritually nearsighted, he says. Uh, you cannot see accurately if you're not working on your faith. And so you start to drift. You start to see things the wrong way. I, I always forget which one nearsighted is. I had to look it up again. Uh, nearsighted is the one where you can see uh, things that are close, but not things that are far, right? The things that are far are blurry. And so I'm actually a little nearsighted. If I take off my glasses, those of you in the back become blurry. <laughs> That's the main reason I wear my glasses uh, when I preach. Uh, it's, it's so I can see the people in the back half of the room. Otherwise, you're just blurs back there. So, so I'm nearsighted. The stuff in the distance is, is blurry. And Peter, that's a great picture. You can see why the Holy Spirit moves Peter to use it. It's a great picture. He says, if we're not working on our faith, if we're not growing in our faith, if we're not working, you know, all those things, service and prayer and, and witnessing and, and being in the Word, all these things we do that help us grow in those, all those areas, if we're not growing, we, we become spiritually nearsighted. The stuff in the distance gets blurry. And which distance does he have in mind? I imagine what he says here would apply to the future. We kind of lose sight of what God might do for us in the future or will do for us in the future. But he actually points backwards. 
He says, you, you, you forget what God did for you in the past. You don't see it clearly. We, we look back, and instead of seeing clearly how much Jesus has saved us from and what sins he's washed away and the fact that he set us free from all that junk and that, that shame is gone and the guilt is gone, instead of seeing that clearly with the glasses on, we take the glasses off, and it's all blurry, and we can't see it anymore. And what happens when we forget what God has done for us? Well, there's this tendency to drift back into it. Oh, it wasn't so bad back when I used to drink or back when I used to look at that or I used to do this or whatever it might be. It wasn't so bad back then. We forget what Jesus saved us from and we start drifting back into it. But if we're growing in these qualities, our spiritual eyes will see clearly. Our spiritual eyes will see clearly. And that helps us. It helps us understand what God's done for us and that helps us live for him even more faithfully going forward. So that's a benefit. It's a benefit of working on our faith is we'll see clearly and we'll keep moving forward with him. Number three, third benefit of diligent faith is that our feet will be steady. Our feet will be steady. That's verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, there he is again, if you practice these qualities from five through seven, you will never fall. Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. So two parts to that verse. First part, the Lord calls us to himself. The Lord calls us to himself. That's what the verse means. He uses a couple of technical words there. He elects us. He chooses us. He calls us to himself. Um, Ephesians 1, Paul talks about uh, we, he chose us. I forget which verse it was, but it's early in Ephesians 1. It might be verse 4. He chose us before the foundation of the world. Right? That's, the, the word elected simply means to choose. God chose us. But, you know, sometimes we talk about that doctrine as if it's some sort of a, you know, permission to sit back and, and do nothing. Some people think it, perceive it that way or, or mischaracterize it that way. That's not what Peter's going to do. Peter says, yes, you've been called, you've been elected, but don't you dare take your calling for granted. Right? I mean, what an interesting mashup of words. You've been elected, you've been chosen, God did all the work, so make every effort be diligent to confirm your calling. It almost feels paradoxical. He chose you, so make every effort to, be, to confirm that you're chosen. That's really what he says. Uh, be diligent to confirm that you are chosen. Don't take your calling for granted. What is he talking about? How do we not take our calling for granted? I think the answer to it is we live it out. It's the qualities. We live out our faith. And so I, I think what it's saying is if you're saved, show it. If you're saved, show it. If you belong to Jesus, live like it. Be all the more diligent, he tells us, to confirm your calling. Not so that you can save yourself. You can't. I please do not leave here today thinking that we said that we need to work to save ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. So when he tells us to work at it, he's not saying work at it to save ourselves. He's saying work at it to show that yourself has been saved. Show that it's happened. And when we do that, Peter says, here's the promise you have as you're doing it, because you're like, I'm going to mess it up. Yes, you're going to mess it up. I'm going to screw it up this afternoon. Yeah, probably somehow, maybe hopefully in a little way, but yeah, probably somehow. But here's what you know as you do, second half of verse 10, if you practice these qualities, right? If you're living out your faith, growing in it, you'll never fall. He's talking about falling away. You will not fall away. Why? Because the Lord is holding you. The Holy Spirit's got the rope. 
The Lord is holding the rope. It goes back to to what we said before. Uh, The Lord has us. He's holding us. And if the Lord is holding us, really what you have here, this and the next one too, verse 11, it's, it's the doctrine of assurance. It's the doctrine of assurance. Those of you who are minded that way and like to think in systematic categories, you have the doctrine of assurance here. Your feet will be steady. You will not fall away if you make every effort to, to confirm your calling. And, and he is, but confirm, again, he's not saying make yourself be saved. He's saying live out the save that already happened. Make every effort. You will not fall away. So your feet will be steady. He's got the rope. He's holding on to us. Finally, number four, the fourth benefit is that our welcome, your welcome will be lavish. Your welcome will be lavish. And so verse 11, my summary of verse 11, when our time on earth is done and we are ushered through the gates of heaven, Peter says, we will be richly provided for. And so our welcome, and he's talking about the welcome into heaven, the welcome will be lavish. For in this way, this is verse 11, in this way, it's the only place where he doesn't say these qualities, but I think he could have substituted these qualities. It's the, grammatically, it's, it's what he's saying. For by building up your faith, by diligently practicing these qualities, there will be richly provided, and that the word, the word actually means lavish. In a different context, you could tra- translate it as lavish, which is where I'm getting this word from. You will be lavishly provided, there will be lavishly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He uses a big, long phrase there. I'm not sure why. It's a beautiful phrase, but what, he's, what he means is heaven. I think what he's talking about is heaven. Uh, you will be, there will be richly provided for you a, a lavish entrance when you, when you get to heaven. It's, it's a promise. He's talking about heavenly rewards. What we start here does not end here. It's a biblical principle. What we start here does not end here. That, verse 11, what we start in this life doesn't, doesn't end in this life. Right? It doesn't end at the funeral. It, it, it extends. It extends into eternity. Uh, biblically speaking, that's true for both ill and good. It's, it's true for both good and bad in terms of, of eternal punishment and eternal reward. Peter doesn't want to talk about the punishment at all, not in this context, maybe later in the letter. But he doesn't talk about the negative here, so we won't either. His focus is all the reward. He says, if you, if you give your life to Jesus, if you put your faith in him, if, if, if you, you say, I trust you, Jesus, and now his righteousness becomes your righteousness, like we talked about last week from verse 1. Uh, and then, because that's authentic, because that's real, we then do what we're told, and we make every effort to build on that, uh, to build on that faith with a life that shows that our faith is real, that shows that it's genuine. If that's the way we live in this world, then we will have a rich and abundant reward waiting for us in the next world. That's verse 11. If, if we live for him in this world, uh, we will be rewarded in the next world. Again, Peter's not making stuff up here. He heard Jesus say it in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but rather store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. I was reading a story about a week ago, it might have been two weeks ago, about um, a baseball player, Derek Jeter. Some of you remember Derek Jeter. Uh, if you're not a baseball fan, Jeter is the uh, Hall of Fame 
shortstop for the New York Yankees. Played his whole career for the Yankees. Uh, he retired about 10 years ago or so. He was elected to the Hall of Fame, Baseball Hall of Fame, on the first ballot. Pretty sure he was the first ballot, which is very rare. Usually they make you wait a few years before they vote you in. Uh, first ballot Hall of Famer. Truly one of the greats. All right, I, and this is hard for me as a Red Sox fan to say, but you need to understand, he's really one of the greatest from the last 50 years. Tremendously skilled player and a pretty decent guy, too, as near as I could tell. So anyway, Derek uh, Jeter was at a, a baseball event at, the, at, at Yankee Stadium a few weeks ago, sometime in the last month, and um, some promo event they do, they bring, it was probably Old Timers Day, something like that. They brought Jeter back, and at some point he was t chatting with reporters, and he told a little story that I'd never heard uh, about something that happened to his, to his parents, actually. And he didn't give a lot of details, it was just like a little bit, so I can only tell you what was in the story. But uh, apparently, at some point years ago, um, his parents' house got flooded. So Derek Jeter wasn't always Derek Jeter. He, once he was just a little boy who, you know, like anybody else. And, uh, and he played Little League and all that kind of stuff that, that you know, people do, many of you, especially athletic types like him. And so uh, his parents had all the memorabilia, his baseball memorabilia, in the family basement, and they had a flood. The family basement got flooded. And so all of this stuff, all this Derek Jeter stuff from when he was younger got flooded. It got caught in this flood, including some baseball cards. Baseball cards from early in his career. Very early in his career is his Hall of Fame, one of the greatest shortstops to ever play career. Uh, it all got flooded. It all got ruined by this water that came gushing into the family basement. And he's kind of told this story. He's talking about something else. But I just thought, that's what the world's treasures are like. If you don't follow baseball, those baseball, you know, a Derek Jeter rookie card or a Derek Jeter card from his high school year, you know how sometimes you make those fake baseball cards? <laughs> that would be worth a whole lot of money. Ruined. Destroyed. And that's what the world's treasures are like. You know, some of them are a little more stable than baseball cards, but, but in the end, all of it is destined for destruction. All of it. Peter's actually going to talk about that later in this letter. But if we invest in this, if we invest in what this passage talks about, if we make every effort to build up our faith, then we're sending our treasures ahead. Right? To go back to Jesus' idea, we're storing them up in heaven. And when we get there, they will be waiting. They will be waiting for us. So your lavish will be welcome. Uh, your, your welcome will be lavish when you get to heaven if you, if you and I build up our faith. Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt, one of the presidents of the United States oh, about 120 years ago. Uh, Roosevelt once said, nothing in the world is worth doing unless it means effort. Teddy Roosevelt, nothing in the world is worth doing unless it means effort. Now, from what I know of Roosevelt, he was probably talking about war or politics or something like that. He was a pretty rough guy sometimes. But that principle applies just as much to faith. We're saved by grace. We're saved by grace, not by works. Please hear me say that one more time. I don't want anybody to think otherwise. We're saved by grace, not by works. But that doesn't mean there isn't any work to do. There is work to do. Following Jesus involves effort. It involves some work. Now, thankfully, we're not on our own in that effort. God gives us the power. His divine power is at work in us for, to, for everything we need for life and godliness. God himself holds the rope, uh, but we have a part to do. We're called to be diligent. We're called to make every effort.
And really, we're asking this bigger question this fall, how do we live with sense in, in, uh, in serious times? I think this is part of the answer. Part of the answer is that we, we start with ourselves, right? Part of the answer is that we make every effort to build up our faith in Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we pray you would help us to do that. Well, I'm going to say thank you first. Thank you that we are saved by grace and not by works. There is nothing anybody listening to this or any of us uh, talking or any of us have done to save ourselves. Uh, you, you called us. You did everything that needed to be done to make that call effectual and uh, effective. It's all you. And now we belong to you. If we've, made, if we've put our faith in you, now we belong to you. And now we need, we need to, to chase after you. We need to pursue you. We need to climb that ladder, that climbing wall of faith. Would you please empower us to do it? We know that's your heart. We know that's what you want to do. So I pray for myself and my brothers and sisters who are listening that you'd help us to, to take that call seriously and to, to lean into it, to take that effort all along, trusting that you've got us, that you're holding the rope. If I can go back to that one last time, you're holding the rope, you've got us. And so we are free to make every effort knowing that we're, we're protected, we're safe, we're empowered. We have everything we need to live for you which is exactly what we want to do. So we thank you, God, and we pray that you would do it. In Jesus' name, amen.